I'm Mike Vardy. Meal planning is important because it prevents us from being a disappointed wreck when dinner time comes around and we have no clue what to make or even if we have the ingredients to make the meal. It's a time and a money saver, but most importantly, it frees up valuable brain space. Creating a meal plan prepares us for the week to come and gives us peace of mind that we're organized and can feed ourselves and our family. That's why I do it and that's why Plan to Eat helps me do it. Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And Plan to Eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. And you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the Plan to Eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plantoeat.com slash timecrafting. That's plantoeat.com forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give Plan to Eat a try today. And this is the Productivityist Podcast. On this episode of the Productivityist Podcast, I talk with Elliot Wagenheim. He has a platform that he's created called Farsighted, and it allows him to kind of work with entrepreneurs and organizational leaders to transform themselves from like small companies or maybe companies that are kind of um, putting themselves in a place of inhibiting informa- uh, you know, innovation and puts them in a position where they can actually embrace it and grow from these small companies that might even have a bit of dysfunction to really successful and well-recognized organizations uh, throughout uh, the country. And we're talking about the United States here, but this kind of platform can work anywhere. And Elliot goes over this platform today, talks a bit of his book, uh, Fire Aim Ready. Lots to talk about in this episode. I just want to dive into it with you. So let's do that right now. Here's my conversation with Elliot Wagenheim on the Productivityist Podcast. Enjoy. I'd like to welcome Elliot Wagenheim to the Productivityist Podcast. Elliot, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to talk to you about because my wife and I, we are partners in this operation that we call Productivityist. Now, it's a very dangerous thing for me to ask how I would be able to cope with that, how I would be able to put myself in the right mindset to achieve success with my partnership with my wife. So I'm not going to go down that road because, you know, that's where, okay. mar- that's where marriage counselors, I think, come in more than what you do. Where, where do you help people in terms of when they are, when they are trying to build a successful operation, um, especially when it comes to dealing with other people? Because obviously you're in a partnership because someone brings something to the table that is valuable to the, to the, to the operation. So where, where's a good place to start from when people are trying to build success in that, in that kind of venture? Well, I think that it comes down to, and I, I, look, let me give you by way of background. I've been a business attorney and coach and counselor for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen tremendous successes and a lot of crashes and burns. And in all that time, what I realized is that any contract, let alone a partnership, which is in effect a contract, it's an agreement on how we're going to do this thing, how we're going to go forward, comes down to making sure you're on the same page as to four questions. That's it, just four questions. Okay? Yep. You want to know what they are? I I don't just want to know. I think my audience wants to know. Okay. So the first question is, why would I want to get out of this? So whenever a, co- a client calls me and says the thing of entering into a contract, I ask them, what would make you want to get out of it? 
Sometimes if it's a standard services contract, they'd say, well, not getting paid. But sometimes it's if somebody doesn't do this on time, or I expected them to do that, but they do the other thing. Or if it's a partnership, if if my partner comes in at 10, leaves at 2, and takes a two-hour lunch, or if whatever it happens to be. But you have to really think about that. Why would I want to get out of this thing? Um, and so that's the first question. The second question is pretty much the polar opposite of that. And that is, what would it take to make me look back on my decision to join this partnership or sign this contract as the best professional decision I've made in the last five years? What would, what would it take? What would hit this ball out of the park? And so you start thinking about, well, it's not just, again, in a services contract. It's not just getting paid. But maybe it's that we're able to expand or I'm able to establish a reputation here or they're going to become a referral source or we're going to realize I'm going to realize the vision of this or I can achieve mastery in a certain skill or become a better person or a better craftsman or whatever that happens to be. But what's your what's your best of all possible worlds? So those are the foundational questions. Those are two. The other two questions are mirror images of each other. And it's particularly true in a partnership, but it also applies when you're dealing with contracting parties. And they are, what can be done over my objection? And what can I do over my partner's objection? Now, you can take all of the legalese in the world and you can start counting noses and stock certificates and and you can talk about boards of directors and you can talk about you know job descriptions and scope of work and all that stuff but it really boils down to on a practical level what can i do over somebody's objection which also translates to what can i do without having to ask permission and what can somebody do without consulting with me or over my objection so if you take a partnership you know can I go out and buy pencils without my partner's approval, without getting some sort of running it by him or her? The answer is probably yes. Can I sign a new lease? Can I change banks? Can I hire a six-figure salesperson? Can I bring on my daughter as an employee? Can I open up a new location or um, decide that our software development company is also going to dabble in landscape architecture. You know, so what is it that each side can do without checking with the other? Can I write myself a, a bonus of $50,000? Even if I even if I have to write you a bonus too of 50,000, maybe maybe there's disagreement on whether we can take that much cash out of the business. So, can I do that or can I use the company credit card to pay for lunch? Do I have to run that by you? Um, those are the four questions. And most people don't ask them, believe it or not, or they leave it to their lawyer and they say, well, what's typical? And that's just looking for a, a custom fit in an off the rack world, you know? So where, did, like, I mean, that's the first off, those questions are incredibly detailed, which I think people, uh, you know, it, it's impressive to have those in front of them. What, what would preclude somebody, you present them these questions, um, if they if they are indecisive, if they aren't sure, if they are um, feeling like you know what that's a lot to throw at me. I, I was just you know I was just bandying about this idea, and you've really given me something deep to think about. When they can't come up with with concrete answers, or even 
um, or the cancers aren't necessarily concrete enough, where, what do you, what do you recommend or, how, or do you step in or how does that work? Yeah. What I do is I can, I can tell them what a lot of businesses do. And then we start telling stories because stories, you know, bullet points are very concrete. Like you said, they're, they're, um, you know, this statement, you can't hire somebody, whatever. Um, but sometimes you tell stories and that's where experience comes in. I can say, okay, this happened. Would you be comfortable with a partner making a lateral decision to do this or that happened? What, how do you think this should work? What, how do you envision your partnership working if this situation comes up? And we kind of war game a number of things. And in telling the stories, uh, both of, you know, my clients often bring a wealth of lifetime experience to, um, to whatever endeavor brings them into my conference room. Um, or certainly my experience, we talk about, well, okay, let's forget about this contract. Contracts are intimidating and there's looking at a white piece of paper can be kind of overwhelming at times. You know, why don't we just talk about the, the best partnership you ever had, the worst partnership you ever had, things that you wish you had done differently in some other business situation or even in some other relationship. Let's talk about... Um, your own stories and what kind of rubbed you the wrong way or what made you feel ecstatic that you decided to embark on this initiative. And if we take the time to, to do that, to really flesh out the stories, then you can make a custom tailored agreement that actually fits people as opposed to some boilerplate off of, you know, your attorney's hard drive. And this, these kind of, these questions, um, you can apply, can are they just applied to, you know, obviously operations partnership, but you've got like management, like uh, they can be evolved, I would imagine, or they can be adjusted, but it gets to the point where you start questioning. And I think that's one of the things that you're, you're focusing on is um, they need to be in order to think farther ahead. And I see this with time management all the time, too. I actually coached a client yesterday who who um, doesn't like to plan too far ahead because they want to make sure that the opportunities that present themselves, they may have the ability to take advantage of them. And I think the danger okay. in that, I think the danger there is that if you could, if five opportunities come to you all at once in the same time period, then you're faced with a whole other choice. So like being like, th this is kind of like future proofing, right? Really in a lot of ways. It is. I mean, that's all a partnership is all a contract is, is, you know, crystal ball case. You know, we're not creating a contract to figure out how you should handle the thing that happened two years ago. We're trying to create a contract to figure out what should happen in the next five months, five years, five decades. Um, and you're right. These questions can be tailored. And I'll give you an example. Um, one of the questions is, how do I get out of this? Or what would make me want to get out of this? Let's say you're hiring somebody. And hiring is fun. I have to tell you, you have a, a need. You've got a person in front of you that wants the job. But before you extend your hand across the table, if you ask a variant of that question or make a statement based on the why would I want to get out of this question, you look at that person and you say, hey, you should know this is why I'm going to fire you. I'm going to fire you if your CUSAT is below 92%. I'm going to fire you if you lose the McCormick contract. I'm going to fire you if you're over budget. I'm going to fire you if you're behind schedule, whatever it happens to be. Now, that's not a warm and fuzzy conversation. And you don't have to phrase it in quite the, those terms. 
But nobody leaves that conversation unclear as to what the minimum requirements are. And if you have to sit that person down in your office in eight months, you're not going to blindside them if you say, look, I have to let you go because your customer satisfaction rating is below 92%. You lost a requirement contract. You're behind schedule and you're over budget. Right? Yeah. So you can tailor the questions to the situation, but you absolutely have to anticipate the future and start with the end in mind. How do you help people get past the discomfort of all of this? Because it can get really uncomfortable when you start to, I mean, either because you've been burned before, so you don't quite, but you also feel like you don't want to color your decision necessarily by that. How do you help people get past this discomfort? Because there's uncertainty and uncertainty. I mean, it's well known we need both certainty and uncertainty, but that that can be a real uh, stumbling block. It can. You're absolutely right. And there's no neat packaged one uh, master answer to handle all of these people. I mean, look at your practice. You consult, you coach a variety of clients. Mm -hmm. Some of them come at their issues like the client you just described. You know, he doesn't like planning much in advance and he wants to see himself as open to new opportunities and eminently flexible and and that's a mindset that you as a coach, knowing best practices, you have to deal with. And you can't look at your client, I don't think you do, and just say, hey, yeah, you're wrong. Yeah, it's you not do a, it it's, my way. Yeah, it's not, you can't. In fact, it's interesting. I was just having a conversation uh, on, on, a, on a podcast with, uh, with Toku McCree, one of our past episodes. And it was, you know, one of the things that I don't like about a lot of productivity practice out there is that they're too rigid. It's like, if you don't do all of it, then you're not doing it right. And that's something I, 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 vehemently disagree with because productivity is a personal thing and there's a lot of personal components to it. So, but, but continue because you're right. It's, 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 you can't just say this is how it is. And and if you don't like it tough or, or, you know what I mean? Right. No, it's, it, it's exactly right. It's eminently personal. And, um, so what, what I imagine you have to do in your own practice, you have to get a sense of the person sitting in front of you. Mm-hmm. What are their fears? What are their uh, emotional issues? And everybody brings emotional issues to um, to business. The person that says it's not personal, it's just business was an idiot. You know, of course, it's it's personal. You bring your own experience, good, bad and indifferent. So, you know, sometimes I've worked with clients and I've actually role played. I said, say the words. Say the words. This is why I'm going to fire you or say the words. I don't want you to do this. A lot of times I'll bring in the the partners together. You know, and a lot of times I'll get on conference call, even in contracts with the other party. I did that just this morning. And I said, look, we can, we were dealing with this particularly onerous contract. There was a lot of money involved. I said, you know, I got, I said to the other side, I got your comments. I got your red line. There's a lot of red in there. I can send back a draft and we can send back 19 different drafts. We'll all get frustrated. The lawyers will get paid and nothing will get done. But why don't we just, what I want to do is get on a conference call and let's, let's talk about the framework before we talk about the words. Let's talk about the framework. This is what I'm scared of. This is what's keeping me up at night when I'm advising my client. And a lot of times the other side says, Oh, well, well, we'd never do that. The reason that we included this clause is because of our fear of X. And I'll say, well, okay, I understand that fear. Well, now, why don't we figure out how we can 
kind of address both of our fears as opposed to just going back and forth on contracts with, um, I'm going to add in clause eight. Nope, I'm going to delete clause eight and, and nothing gets accomplished. So it's really a method of communication. And, and believe it or not, one of the keys to that communication comes from improv comedy. Oh, excellent. I, I have a background there. I have a, I have a oh, background. Okay. Oh, yeah. I did, I did improv for many years. In fact, um, those listening to the podcast know that I started out doing productivity parody is where I started. So I was actually doing, <laughs> I was doing a Stephen Colbert-esque kind of take on, on, on productivity. And that led me to where I am now. So I, obviously I, I don't do that anymore because I've become the very thing I'm parodying. But that's, <laughs> I mean, there's something about, yeah, improv. I, I've always said like improv is one of those skills that is, uh, is so valuable but most people get it in their head that it's just a whose line is it anyway kind of thing. And it's not that at all. No, it's, it's not. Um, but, and see, now I'm going to violate like a litigator's number one rule. I'm going to ask you a question and I don't know what you're going to say. What do you think is one of the key rules of improv comedy? If you're giving instruction to somebody on how to do improv, what's one of the key rules to being a player in a scene? Always say yes. Always say yes. So that's exactly right. So you have, you know, and, and you hear it described as yes and, yep, right? Yep, yep. Well, that's, that's the best way to negotiate a contract. If I tell you that um, I am absolutely, this is my position, it's absolutely this, and, and we want to make a deal. If you say no, you can't have that. So we're at yes, no. The scene ends in improv, the contract ends in business. It does, or or if or but, if or if the offer is just, I mean, and to use an improv example, it's like, uh, let um, you know, uh, we've seen this many happen, many times happen on stage. Like, oh, look at that pretty cat. That's not a cat. Okay, well, great, you've just killed the offer. Like the offer is right. dead. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But um, if I say that, um, um, yeah, and not only the cat, look at the rhino standing next to him. Yeah, you know. So if if I can, in business and negotiation, say yes, and if I can say yes, I understand your point, you need this. And what I need in order to protect it from going south on me is this. Well, now we have a conversation and mm -hmm. we don't just have people glaring at each other and pointing fingers and lawyers going back and forth. We can actually figure out a way to maneuver together past the rocks that are in each other's way. It opens up opportunities too. I mean, it, when you're looking yeah. at improv, if you said like, there's a rhino standing next to it, that's one possibility. But the other is, oh, you like my cat? Like all of a sudden it's like, okay, now the cat has an owner. Like, so it, right. it really does, it, it allows for, um, you know, development and growth and all that. Whereas no kills it. Now I do want to touch on no really quickly as we get, you know, as we kind of dive into this is what role does no have in all of this? Because it, it I'm a big believer in, in that there, it's a word that we don't use often enough be, because we tend to, uh, if we say yes to saying yes to everything is saying no to something and saying no to everything is saying yes to something like there's, it, it's a real dichotomy. And a lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people love to say yes because they don't want to take anybody off and they want to be accepting. But what role does no play in all this? Cause it, it must, and not necessarily always in a negative way. Well, no, I think I think that um, you're absolutely right. No is extremely valuable and extremely positive for a business to be able to say it, um, because you've got to 
and this is real estate, but it goes into productivity, it goes into a lot of things. You've got to know your highest and best use. So that if, you know, I love public speaking, for example, but I, I know the audience um, that relates to what I have to say best. I know the audience that fires me up. So if I get, for example, a um, an invitation to go speak to um, a group of, you know, first year financial planners who are looking to become, you know, associates in that business, I'd say no, not because I disrespect that that audience, but because I know my highest and best use. That's not going to be the best use of their time or of my time. It's not where my message is best spread. Um, and so in a business, in a contract or in a partnership, you have to know who you are. You have to know what you're comfortable with to be able to say no. And so many businesses, particularly when they're uh, early on, you know, on the startup or, or just a couple of years under their belt, they'll, they'll take on any client because they're so concerned about keeping the lights on. Uh, and I get that. I really mm-hmm. do. Yeah. But but the, the rule is, the fact of the matter is, that bad clients push out good clients. Because you work so hard to make a bad fit work, and you devote so much of your resources and time and emotional energy to making a bad fit work within whatever you want to do, that time is finite, right? It, it's, 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 the, it's the 80-20 rule. You spend 20% yes. of your time with 80% of your, pro- you know what I mean? It's, it's that 80-20 rule. Yeah, and so you wind up when you when you don't say no, you wind up accepting things and then pushing out the things you really should have left yourself open for. So no is incredibly valuable. How important is stepping back when you're doing all this? You've got these four questions. You've got you know you want to forward with with the mindset of finishing with the end in mind. How important is pausing and stepping back? Because again, we live in a culture, especially with what I talk about, where speed, quantity, uh, forward progress uh, at all costs seems to be the currency of, of, of you know, progress. But not enough. Yeah. there's not enough value seen in the pause or, or, the, or even the stepping back to gain perspective. What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I... I believe it's incredibly valuable, and sometimes I've been guilty of, of overlooking it, particularly when things get frantic. But I, I think you have to have a number of devices to do that. Um, some people meditate, and I started meditating about a year ago. Um, and I don't want to sound all new age or whatever, but sometimes just surprising your day with the quiet, you know, just just kind of being now, not thinking about payroll in the next three days or, or what's coming down the pike or this project, just kind of settling back into quiet helps just for 10 minutes. Um, I think it's valuable to identify those people in your network who are bright points of light, but they're not your employees. They're not your peers. They're not your competitors. Um, they're not in your organization, but they're people that you just think are, are just amazing people. I, I'll give you a, I'll tell you what I call them in a minute. Sure. Imagine if you're giving a party for like 100 people, okay, and you send out all of these invitations and they're RSVPs. And sometimes you get RSVPs and you're like, you open it up and you're like, oh, cool. She's coming. That's great. That's great. But sometimes you get the RSVP in and you just pump your fist. You're like, yes, that person's coming. Those are what I call the fist pump people. We all have them. 
we've got friends, we've got people we like talking to, but there are a couple fist pump people that you're like, yes. I think it's incredibly valuable to identify those fist pump people for whatever reason. They don't have to be prospective clients. They don't have to be partners. They don't have to be in your industry, but just people that you get a charge out of and schedule coffee with them regularly, you know, once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is, but keep your spark burning. And those fist pump people who have an interesting take on things or engaged in whatever they're doing, a lot of times just the conversation and no agenda conversation allows you to step back, think, and approach things differently. Same thing with cool podcasts like yours, you know, where you're not I'm not thinking about my business. I'm just going to tune in and see what Mike has to say and, and what his this guest has to say. You can, that's a form of stepping back. It's a great service. Or reading a book that has nothing to do with, you know, 20 ways you can boost your architecture business. You know, just read a book and, and that's something you always wanted to do. Take an improv class, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are great, but it's it's... The spark will die if you don't step back. I firmly believe that. Elliot, this has been a great conversation. I know we're going to have more for our uh, members uh, with the bonus episode, but uh, where can people find you and learn more about what you do online? Uh, If they go to foresightedbusiness.com, I also have a a book on management that's on Amazon, and I just decided to make it free because I didn't care if I got $2 or not, so it's free. You look up uh, just Wagenheim on Amazon. You'll see Fire Aim Ready Management talks about these these things, and also on Twitter at Wagenheim, which is W A G O N H E I M. Great! Thanks so much for joining me today, Elliot. I had a great time talking. And you know, it's always good to talk improv, right? Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having. Me. See, and that was you. You accepted the offer. You said yes, and so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Take care. Big thanks to Elliot for joining me this week on the show. Uh, again, a great conversation. Go pick up his book. Uh, you have the capability to do it. It's not going to cost you anything. So go do that. Uh, let, check out the show notes and uh, learn even more about what he's doing. I think it's it's really cool what he's developed. And I I'm, I'm wish him continued success in that. And, of course, the improv stuff is kind of cool, too. Uh, big thanks to John Polster for producing the show. Big thanks to all of my patrons who are getting a bonus episode with Elliot where he dives into a, a bit more stuff, a we get deeper into the weeds a little bit. And if you want to become a patron and hear that bonus content, you get three uh, episodes of the podcast every week, one of which is this episode, but you would have got it a whole day earlier, as well as additional bonus content. And there's other stuff in there. Head over to patreon.com slash productivity to learn more about that. Uh, again, I want to thank all of you for listening and joining me on the show today. If you have a rating or review that you want to leave, do so on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast, because that helps people as well. So if you can't become a patron or, or choose not to, that's another way that you can help the show out. I read all the feedback we get and I want to make the show better. We are over 150 episodes into at this point and going strong. We're th- yeah, three years. Wow. Coming up, we're, we're coming up to three years of doing this, this show. And uh, I've had a blast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. That's it for this week. Until next time, I am your host, Mike Vardy of Productivityist, reminding you to stop guessing and start going.